Welcome to the Chiropractic United podcast series for June 20th, 2012. We have a special guest with us. Yes, we have tracked down our co-founder, Dr. Deed Harrison. Believe it or not, he is on the podcast. Um, so obviously this is brought to you by CBP Seminars. For more information on CBP Technique, please browse to idealspine.com. Also brought to you by another partner, Dr. Fred DiDomenico of Elite Coaching. To see how Dr. Fred can help build your practice, browse to EliteCoachingLLC.com. And finally, by my company, PostureCo, makers of the Posture Screen mobile app available on the iTunes App Store. Just search Posture in the App Store and you'll find it. As well as our Posture X-ray EMR system that you can find out a little bit more information by going to PostureAnalysis.com. Without further ado, take it away, Fred. Okay, welcome everybody on Podcast Land. It is June 20th, and we are here with all the founders of Chiropractic United. Myself, Dr. Fred DiDomenico of Elite Coaching, Dr. Joe Fantelia Posture Co., and once again, we have Dr. our guest speaker slash co-founder, Dr. Deed Harrison, is here to bless us with great knowledge. Welcome back, Deed. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, thanks for calling me a guest speaker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a shout out to you. So, hey, guys, we appreciate your loyalty. First, thank you for your loyalty. We get tons of compliments on these and, and much gratitude for the purpose and principles that we deliver out there. We've had uh, a number of speakers in the past few months. All of them have really been talking about the principle and purpose of chiropractic, as well as what's been going on in the profession. So, hey, we do this for the principle. The principle is truth. And today we're going to talk about the application. And of course, our phenomenal guest speaker slash founder, Dr. Deed Harrison, is going to bless us with some amazing stuff that proves why we do what we do and, and how to do what we do. So take it away, brother. Yeah, I hope I can live up to those expectations. Uh, yeah. And, you know, for every, everybody out there, what we're going to be doing is talking about uh, segmental subluxations today, and we're going to discuss those in the context of, of six mechanical types of spine subluxation or spine displacement. Uh, now, my father and I have, have written extensively about these uh, types of subluxation since the 1990s, and what we did in, uh, in a paper in JMPT in 1998, we did a, a two-part series on spine displacement and spine kinematics with uh, implications and applications for chiropractic theories and technique. And the thing is, classic chiropractic really emphasizes and, and focuses on segmental types of subluxation. That means one vertebra with respect to the one below rotating or translating or both. And while that is a type of subluxation, there are more types than that, and there are more complex types of that. So just as a general review, we presented this information, at least on one category of these six types, in I think it was March of this year, Dr. Fred and myself and Dr. Joe went through snap-through buckling, which is reversal or alterations in the sagittal plane curves. So we want to build on that in this particular podcast and describe the segmental type of subluxation from two perspectives. So first, let me just review the, the types. Um, there are six types of biomechanical displacements. Type one is a segmental subluxation, which we will talk about. Uh, this is where one vertebra will rotate and or translate or both relative to the vertebra below. 
Okay, the, the key with number one is it's inside of the range of motion of the joint. So it's within the allowable limits of joint mobility. Uh, type number two is what CBP really emphasizes a lot in our technique that makes us unique. It's postural rotations and translations as the main motion and then the associated spine coupled motions. And so the spine's going to a, do the main motion that the posture does, and then B, it will adopt and uh, it will undergo coupled motion. So, for example, a left lateral ribcage translation would be the, the postural main motion. The vertebra will actually do a little bit of that lateral translation, and then they will also have some lateral bending associated with them as their coupled motion. So that's uh, type 2. Uh, type 3 is what we talked about in March. That's alteration of the sagittal plane curves. Uh, it's called snap through buckling. Uh, that's an impact injury, uh, either direct compression or it's inertial loading. And that's how we get S curves, uh, cervical kyphosis, etc. cetera. Uh, type four would be uh, what's called Euler buckling. Uh, Euler buckling is a little more complex. Uh, we classically see it in the A to P or P to A view, but Euler buckling is really a three-dimensional displacement of the spine. Uh, so you'll get alteration in the uh, sagittal plane alignment, as well as you'll get transverse and coronal plane displacements with Euler buckling. Uh, Euler buckling usually affects two to three vertebrae at a time, and it tends to be in the distal region of, of each area of the spine. Uh, Euler buckling can be considered to be a type of scoliosis, although it's really not classically like the, the slow deformity like adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. Euler buckling would be an overload injury or an overload event. Uh, that leads us to scoliosis. Uh, scoliosis is, interestingly enough, tied to Euler buckling. It, it has been modeled with Euler equations, although it's not exactly the same because of, of the slow progressive deformity that occurs uh, over time with vertebral deformity, rib deformity, and then uh, extreme lateral bending, axial rotation, and flexion extension of the spine. So Euler buckling, uh, type 4, and scoliosis are, are similar, but they are different. So we categorize them into, into two uh, separate entities. Uh, so that's 4 and 5. And then the sixth one is uh, really it's the same as the first one in a, in a general context. Uh, we call it segmental static or dynamic instability, meaning that it, it's an individual segment that has undergone rotation and or translation but it's past the allowable limits of the joint uh, structures. So we'll, we'd call it instability. And there, there are both types. There's both static and dynamic segmental instability uh, that oftentimes people neglect. Uh, and we'll, we'll discuss uh, that. So what we want to focus on today is the segmental type. Now, classic chiropractic, of course, emphasizes these segmental types, although uh, in my dad's era, and even today in our era, they, they categorize those with, you know, chiropractic listing systems using uh, alphabetical letters like uh, posterior, anterior, left, right, inferior, and superior. And really what they're, they're doing is they're relabeling different types of rotations and translations. So like PLS, PRS, et cetera. 
Uh, I think it's better to just call them rotations and translations on X, Y, or Z axes. That way we, we actually have a, a uniform classification system from profession to profession. And let's not reinvent engineering analysis of the spine just because we're chiropractors, right? Absolutely. Uh, so... Uh, the rotations and translations, there's six degrees of freedom, and a degree of freedom is the number of axes that a ro uh, an object like the spine, a vertebra, can rotate around added to the number of axes that a vertebra or an object can translate along. So in the spine, we have three rotational axes and we have three translational axes, so that leads us to six degrees of freedom, three plus three. Now, inside of six degrees of freedom, we can go plus and minus on each axis for each type or direction or each type of rotation or translation. So really, that gives us six times two is 12 simple motions in six degrees of freedom. So that's important because there, there's 12 mo movements possible. Six of them are, are rotations. Six of them are translations. Now, in the spine, the unique thing is not all vertebrae have the capability of doing all 12 of those uh, movements or displacements. Certain vertebrae have constraints to their system to where they're not allowed to undergo certain degrees of freedom. Hey, Dean, and, I, got a, I got a question, though. So like, a, like what we learned in school, like a PLS, how many degrees of freedom would that be for our audience? Are, yeah. we, are we missing any? Yeah, we're missing some because... P is one direction that's translation backwards, so you could say that's half of one degree of freedom. Uh, L would be, you know, spinous left, and so that's, you know, rotation about the y-axis. That's another degree of freedom. And then S would be superiority, which means lateral flexion. So really that's three out of six of the degrees of freedom. So we're, we're so kind of— missing something. Yeah, we're missing something. And when people say the vertebra has to go P in order to rotate, uh, that's complete bullshit. Yeah. So <laughs> it, yeah, to put it bluntly. So when, when we learn these little rules, like everything goes P in the spine, no, there's only one thing that goes P all the time, and that has nothing to do with my spine. So, Which is why we got a late start on this podcast. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I was using the restroom. So... You know, for people out there that that might shock them, you know, really the spine is stiffer under posterior translation or posterior uh, shear loads. The spine does not like to have a posterior shear to it, so it stiffens the segment and it inhibits or limits y-axis rotation. And there, there's plenty of references in the biomechanical literature on that. Uh, spines are, are actually more flexible in anterior shear than posterior shear, and a vertebra certainly certainly does not have to rotate, or excuse me, does not have to translate posterior in order for it to rotate left and right. That's just absurd. Uh, so some of these uh, theories that are put forth by certain uh, systems in chiropractic, they're a little bit dated. Yeah, that's but, all it is. I mean, it's it's and people don't get offended. It, it's just that it was good for the 70s, but. You know, we've moved on since then. We've learned a lot about the spine. Right. And it, you know what? It's not a bad attempt. It's an attempt to assess segmental displacements from, you know, a rotation and translation perspective. Uh, so, I mean, these are good points to, to talk about. So w when we look at constraints of the system, for example, the, the atlas, the atlas is not able to translate posterior at all because of the dens. So the dens is a constraint. 
and it stops the atlas from going into posterior shear. So the atlas can't go P, and it also can't go A because of the alar ligaments that go from C2 uh, to atlas. There's actually two pairs, so four alar ligaments. Uh, oftentimes, people only know the one pair uh, that goes from the dens to the skull or the occiput. But there's a pair that goes from the dens to the atlas that inhibits anterior translation, and then there's the transverse ligament. And really, it's a very sensitive measurement. If somebody actually does tra translate anterior uh, with their atlas on C2 or with, with the skull on the atlas, if they translate more than a millimeter, hey, that's, that's suggestive of instability. That's how sensitive some of these measurements can be. Uh, hey, can I uh, say something real quick, Dean? Yeah. I just want to add to what Joe said. You know, as you go through this, and, you know, I came through school as a Gonstead doc. I mean, I was AK and gone, said whatever. And we, you know, that's what we learned at LACC is all these listings. And like Joe said, you know, this isn't personal. I mean, there's people that have their techniques like a religion. And a lot of people think that CBP is like that and you judge all other techniques. Well, it's not about that, man. It's We have a responsibility as a chiropractor. It was my impression that chiropractors specialize in spinal biomechanics. And it's also my impression that we're supposed to be the best at one thing which would make sense to me, it's spinal biomechanics. And like what Joe said, it's okay to have new information. So if all the research points to one specific conclusion, then maybe you should just adopt it. And I'm not saying that you don't, but we're not on here to give opinions. Deed's on here doing exactly what you do, is being very objective and showing you what the research says. And if people want to stick to an antiquated system, then you're just saying you don't want to be your best as a chiropractor. And that's my opinion. It's not personal. It's objective. Listen to the research. Don't make a judgment. Just go with what everything says and be the best you can be. That's what this is about. Yeah, and, and at the end of the day, egos go aside. It's patient health that matters. And, exactly. and that, that's our job. We're doctors. we got to figure out you know what's going on with this person. And you've got to use the best available information to make a clinical decision. So <clears throat> with that being said, I mean, those are very important points, uh, Dr. Fred and Dr. Joe. Uh, back to the constraint issue, and then I'll, I'll try to make this, you know, more tangible as we go on. Uh, the constraints are important because when, when you see things that shouldn't be there, understanding the constraints, then right away you go, oh, whoops, there's some ligament injury. So knowing that the atlas can't translate forward and backwards on, on C2, and the skull cannot translate forward and backwards on C1, knowing that if you identify that there is such a displacement, then there's a serious injury to the ligamentous structure of the upper cervical spine. And that requires some detailed assessment and then some appropriate intervention and, and maybe even a surgical uh, consult and maybe even a surgical uh, procedure, depending on how severely the ligaments are torn. So it is important to understand constraints. The, another constraint that people often forget with uh, the upper cervical spine in particular is that the skull on atlas and atlas on C2 cannot translate vertically on the y-axis. So we, because of the fact that we don't have a disc there, that joint isn't allowed to compress down and elevate up. It just it doesn't do that. And then, you know, really with the weight of the skull sitting on top of the atlas, then it's not going to you know, have distraction capabilities anyway. So 
you know, we, we've lost now two degrees of freedom, two out of six, for the Skull Atlas and Atlas C2. So we've lost Z translation and Y translation. And then there's another one that's, you know, that's kind of debatable, arguable, but the information is, is getting relatively clear that there's not a lot of lateral shear capability of these joints. Like in and of themselves, they're not supposed to translate left and right. If they do, there's also ligamentous damage. It has to do with the design of the joint itself and the, the ligamentous structures up there being unique. And we always have to remember there's no disc between Skull Atlas and Atlas C2, and there's specialized ligaments. And then the joint anatomy itself, the shape of the joints, are different in that region than in any other part of the spine. So we should not see a lot of lateral translation. And so when we start to look at these joints and understand their constraints, we, we can understand how many degrees of freedom that they have. So we'll focus on the atlas uh, and upper cervical complex for just a, a bit, and that way we'll get some clear information, and then we'll move on. So I've, I've lost two out of six degrees of freedom and potentially three out of six of the degrees of freedom if I ignore left and right uh, lateral shear. So really the, the segmental subluxations of the atlas were left with flexion extension, y-axis rotation, and then z-axis rotation or lateral bending. And we may not be able to do the translations. The left and right on x is, is debatable. So what happens is we, we compare a vertebra to the one immediately below uh, out of convenience. We have to have an origin for the displacement to occur. Now, classically, some people out there are pretty smart, and they'll know classic biomechanics says, wait a minute, the, the origin of motion is actually somewhere in the disc or somewhere uh, around the joint contacts if you're looking at the upper cervical spine. Well, yeah, that's true, but for practical purposes, we can say, look, uh, C1 moves relative to C2, and, and skull moves relative to atlas. That way we don't have to you know, precisely define the axis of rotation, which is quite challenging. So let's look at these segmental uh, displacements just for a minute, and then we'll go back to the, the upper cervical spine, and then we'll move on. So in chiropractic, the, these segmental subluxations are very dear to us. So there's been a lot written on these. Uh, of interest, the engineers in the profession, like my dad, uh, a, a guy named uh, John Triano, who has a, a, an engineering background, not a mechanical engineer. I forgot his exact degree. If he's listening, I'm sure he'll, you know, be willing to chime in and let us know. But you know, Triano has a PhD, and it's in the biomechanics field. Uh, he discussed in a chiropractic textbook by Haldeman in 2005. Uh, he wrote a chapter called "The Theoretical Basis for Spinal Manipulative Therapy," and he wrote that in. Uh, uh, a book Haldeman was the editor on called Modern Developments in Chiropractic. Uh, Toronto's chapter starts on page 360 or 361. I can't quite remember, but uh, anyway, it's close to that. So anyway, the, the interesting thing is these segmental displacements have been modeled as buckling types of phenomenon, just like Euler buckling and snap-through buckling. A true segmental displacement has been modeled as a type of buckling. Uh, so Toronto discussed this in 2005, and he only discussed their what we call their post-buckle behavior, or in other words, their, their kinematic displacement or their, their rotation or translation. Uh, he kind of neglected the, the fact 
that these are so associated with static uh, displacements uh, in respect to their neutral, like post-buckled modes. Uh, and he didn't really look at, you know, you know, global alignment of the posture and the the uh, sagittal plane curves when he did it. But at least he described the segmental displacements as a, a type of a post-buckling kinematic displacement. Uh, the, the the fun thing is my dad and I did that uh, seven years earlier in 1998 in JMPT, but of course we weren't referenced in that 2005 textbook. Uh, what a that's, surprise! Yeah, that's just a side note. <laughs> call call me bitter or whatever. But any, anyway, um, also uh, a guy named McGill, uh, who's a, an engineer as well. He's from Canada. Stuart McGill wrote a book on the low back. Uh, and he also wrote several articles in uh, different journals. For example, one he did in the Journal of Biomechanics in 1997, and the title of the article is uh, The Biomechanics of Low Back Injury and then something else. But it was uh, Journal of Biomechanics 1997, uh, and it was uh, page 465 is where it started. McGill actually describes buckling of the segments of the spine under load in a power lifter, he had him under video fluoroscopy, and he showed, you know, under video fluoroscopy, when that load is too high and there's some a funny alignment shift, then there can be a segmental buckling of certain areas of the spine that are predisposed to that or that receive the highest load. So these these segmental displacements are caused by loads, and they're they're going to be rotations and translations. Now, going back to the upper cervical spine. If we actually see a lateral overhang of C1 on C2, like on an APOM, then th this is a serious issue. Now, there's a problem with projection when you look at an X-ray because the Y-axis rotation of that joint, so the transverse plane rotation, can, can make it look on an AP X-ray like it has some overhang or lateral translation. So you have to learn how to account for some projection problems there and a little magnification. But if you actually see overhang of C1 on C2 from side to side, it's got to be both sides. It can't just be one side. Then you you truly have some injury to that upper cervical spine. Now, Joe, you're aware of this because you have this as a possible measurement on an APOM and posture rate, correct? Correct. And um, within this month, we're going to also have it on the nasium as well, too. So do you remember the limits of that displacement? Of Oh, you mean from on one side or added together? Yeah, either or. It should be uh, added together. It shouldn't be more. Now, don't quote me, but it shouldn't be more than seven millimeters added together from lateral bending left to right. Am I close? Yeah, that, that's out of the literature. And, and unfortunately, that's a large overhang. I mean, that's big. See, I pay attention in the seminars. Right. So that... <laughs> See, that's, that's a big-time displacement, 7 millimeters of overhang. And in reality, there's, there's one study that was done in vivo, but the problem is it was done MRI, non-weight-bearing. And that's 7 millimeters of movement from left to right, not the atlas is hanging off 7 millimeters inside bending to the right. There's, that's correct. Yeah, we got to clarify that for people. Otherwise, they're going to think we're, we're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Right. That's right. And that's right out of the, the classic biomechanics information on the cervical spine. Like, for example, the Cervical Spine Research Society's textbook uh, that's called The Cervical Spine, uh, it'll have that uh, information in it. Uh, the, the problem is 
that's that's really kind of maybe dated information. There was one study that was done on MRI in the early 2000s uh, by Crocane's group, and it was an in vivo non-weight-bearing MRI in the lateral overhang. So do you remember what that data was? Boy, you're just quizzing the hell out of me. Well, I, I know that if you were laterally bending side, one side should be with X-ray, shouldn't be more than... I think it's 1.7 millimeters of of shift in vivo, but it's about 2.2 millimeters, if I recall, if you're at a focal film distance of 72 inches. And I remember we rounded up to three millimeters because of a one millimeter uh, standard error of measure when digitizing. How's that sound? Yeah, yeah that's pretty close. You're, you're pretty close. So the, the problem is that that study, the in vivo MRI non-weight bearing, number one, it's non-weight bearing, uh, so we don't know the actual limits there. Uh, so we have to assume some projection. We also have to assume some some error in measurement. So 2.5 to 3 millimeters is a, cu- is a cutoff left or right, not combined, right? Correct. The, the combined, according to the AMA guides, is 7 millimeters of overhang. So, I mean, th- th- these limits are important to note because if, if I truly have these displacements, something has to be done about them. And you have to learn how to assess them. So it's a open mouth lateral bending. Yeah. Yep. So I've got a, a, a four-year-old in the room here that he's talking. So you guys give me just a sec. Excuse okay. me for just one sec. Damien, Damien you got to go out so Papa can do the podcast. Or you got to be quiet. Okay. He's he's flying his he's flying his Lego airplane. Yeah, my son's yeah. playing with his Legos right here too. And you're you're breaking up just a little bit too, Deed. Okay. How am I how am I now? You're pretty good. As long as nobody's streaming Netflix, I think we'll be okay. Okay. All right. So, you know, the, the other thing with the Atlas that we want to talk about and Fred is real aware of this one is Atlas laterality on a nasium x-ray. And that's different than the overhang translation. Laterality in chiropractic upper cervical analysis is classically lateral flexion. So the skull atlas so if we look at limits of, of motion there, uh, we can get some very important information about segmental displacements either within the range of motion of the joint or past the allowable range of motion of the joint. So true upper cervical doctors will take a nasium and they'll measure the center line of the skull and they'll compare that to the atlas plane line and they'll look at the atlas lateral flexion relative to the skull. So, Dr. Fred, do you remember what the limits are of the uh, upper angle or the atlas lateral flexion under the skull? Do you remember what the limits are for that? Uh, that's what we said, three degrees. Yeah, that that's pretty good. Three degrees is uh, a, approximately what we call the, the bell-shaped curve, the plus or minus standard deviation from the mean. So one standard deviation will be usually roughly three degrees to each side. Uh, occasionally there, there's people that can go up to five degrees each side, but they would be, you know, pretty extreme outliers. That would be like at the 95% confidence interval. So there, there's a few people that can get out, you know, to the five degree mark, but anything above five degrees is, is really rare to see. And we would absolutely want to cl- classify that as an injured, unstable joint. If we saw that on a gymnasium. So if we saw an upper angle of three degrees or less, you call that inside the normal range of motion of the joint. If you saw it, you know, four and a half to 
five degrees, boy, you better start to be concerned about possible ligamentous injury here. And you got to realize that it's it's at its end range of motion while the person's in neutral posture on the X-ray. So you know the classic nasium X-ray is not a, a stress bending film like we were talking about the APOM overhang of C1 on C2. Mm-hmm. The the, na- the nasium is a neutral film. So if you see a joint on the neutral X-ray that is at its end range of motion, that's a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and people unfortunately aren't being taught this in in, in schools enough. It's like, look, you, you got an upper angle that's three degrees or five degrees, even though you might you know be able to say, hey, that's inside the whoops the limit of range of motion of the joint. You're donated in CPP nonprofit. Yeah, I know that's my my phone going off. So uh, anyway, you're. Uh, you got to understand that that is at the it's in range of motion in the neutral position, so you got to be worried. Okay, and the other thing, Joe, and and you should be intimately aware of this. If you do see somebody that has a five degree or a seven degree atlas lateral flexion lateral flexion under the skull, before you start to think instability, what might you think of? Are you using me as an example again? Yeah. 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 Well, if someone was born with maybe a congenital abnormality of the condyles, maybe if one of the condyles is a little bit shorter on one side than the other, it could give uh, some lateral flexions that appear differently that might be within a range of motion suitable for that, that patient due to, due to anatomy. Yeah. That, you you rule that, that out. This is a, a short appendage syndrome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're not talking about that anomaly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so... Somebody can have a, a short condyle, uh, and and what that'll do is that'll create an artifact of atlas laterality, and that's important to assess because that it does occur. Now it's not you know it's not like ten percent of the people are going to have that, but there's a percentage of the population. I'm sure it's under ten percent. I don't recall reading any actual studies on on the actual you know incidence of of that particular anomaly, but it does occur, and you've got to spot it. If you see it, you've got to say, okay, now let me let me assess the atlas relative to the the uh, anomaly, and you'll see an angle that's less than you know the the three to five degree mark usually. But if you just assess skull relative to atlas, you'll see you know a large angle there because the atlas is actually matching a tilt relative to the short condyle. So a lot of doctors actually don't you know properly analyze the upper cervical spine. Uh, but anyway, the, the concept is these are types of segmental subluxation that classic chiropractic uh, needs to, and always, you know, in the past that we have accurately identified these. And and unfortunately, oftentimes when I've met students recently, depending on what college they go to, that they're not really trained to spot these things on X-ray anymore. They don't understand the limits of range of motion, and they don't understand, you know, what's allowable allowable for these joints, etc. But it's important because if you truly have a segmental displacement, you've got to match your intervention to what you have in front of you, and it's not an arbitrary contact. 
I always, I always hated, and I, you know, I don't like to use the word because, you know, I don't like my kids to say it, but I'm going to say it. I hated when somebody would get up there and they would say, it doesn't matter what side you adjust on relative to the x-ray displacement. And they'll tell some fictitious story about how some patient had an atlas displacement on x-ray to the right and, and they got the listing wrong and adjust them, adjusted them on the left, but the patient still got better. I'm I'm thinking to myself now that's a bunch of horse shit, you know. Yeah. That, that's like okay, if my bone's broken, let me just break it more and it'll get better, right? Yeah, and don't confuse that when we say when we're doing postural adjusting, simulating the uh, receptors when when a doctor asks us what side are we contacting. This is different. Right. This is true a true segmental displacement that's not dictated or driven by the posture. It's a different category, so that's important. Yeah. So, you know, I, I always totally disliked it when somebody was up there saying, you don't need an x-ray, it doesn't matter. You know, if a patient has an anterolisthesis, go ahead and adjust it more anterior. You know, that just doesn't make sense to me. Well, it's better for retention when they stay in pain and have more symptoms and organic disease. Right. <laughs> so, so back to the segmental assessment here. The, the, I'm going to focus on the atlas because there's some interesting work on this from the segmental perspective. There's actually some pretty good validity uh, for what these displacements will do in people. And there's also good reliability for the assessment itself. So segmental assessments on x-ray have good reliability. Uh, with atlas laterality, uh, the standard error of measurement with, with uh, trained examiners can be a half a degree. So we can measure this thing within a half a degree. So an interesting paper came out of JMPT in the early 1980s by, I'm just going to spell his name because it's, you know, me pronouncing it isn't going to work. It's NG. So his uh, first name or last name is N, sorry, last name is NG. JMPT in the early 1980s uh, compared the upper cervical alignment on nasiums of 10 patients with headaches to 13 asymptomatic controls. And they, they looked at the magnitude of atlas laterality on the nasium, and they identified statistically significant differences in the patients with headaches compared to the controls. And the numbers are going to be surprising to people. Uh, and I said statistically significant differences, but the differences are only 1.1 degrees. So the, the patients with headaches had a 3.1 degree upper angle, and the controls had a 2.0 degree upper angle. And most people would look at that and go, oh, well, they're so similar, you can't say they're different. And we say, no, the ability to make the measurement is, is a 0.5 degree standard error measurement. So this is a true difference between the patients with headaches and the controls. And if, if you think about this in context to what we said about the limits of the upper angle being three to five degrees, the patients with headaches in their neutral position averaged 3.1 degrees. Okay, so I'm pausing there for a minute. The, the patients with headaches averaged in their segmental displacement of skull on atlas 3.1 degrees. That, that's at the end range of motion of the joint in the neutral position. That is a problem. Well, Likely, what's that the average? I mean, what's, yeah. The, yeah, what's the high end of that? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I, I don't have that paper in front of me. I can't uh, can't pull that up right now, but I'd have to dig through it. And if I remember right, they had some people that you know exceeded five degrees. So yeah, then, that's more than a headache. Yeah, <laughs> right. 
then then you got a pretty serious problem. So the idea is probably in the control subjects, the two degree angle was probably driven by some postural displacements. So you know if you translate your head left and right or bend your head left and right, you're going to get a skull atlas displacement. Uh, my father was the first one to to properly and, and accurately categorize the kinematics of the upper neck on a nasium relative to the actual posture of the person. And you can see, you know, a degree to two degrees, maybe two and a half degrees uh, of an upper angle driven by posture. But unless the posture is at an extreme, you know, limit, you're not going to see a 3.1 degree angle in a patient. Okay, so these studies are really important because it says, hey, this is the clinical side that ties into the biomechanical data that we've just discussed. So the, the clinical data says, hey, yeah, if a patient has a true segmental displacement, they, they're going to suffer a condition, whatever that is, more uh, apparently or more overt, overtly compared to a control subject. So these are important things to assess. Uh, so the, the other thing is I want to move away from, from just uh, the upper cervical spine and describe some other studies on segmental displacements. So we've looked at two types. We've looked at uh, within the limits of mobility, and we've looked at uh, outside the limit of mobility, the instability. Uh, another uh, you know, easy one to understand is the concept of antralisthesis and retralisthesis. So if we, if we move below C1, C2, if we start to look at the rest of the cervical spine, we can start to break it down into uh, rotations and translations, and specifically uh, the z-axis translations I want to talk about. So, Joe, I know posture ray uh, measures segmental translations on the z-axis forward and backwards uh, on a lateral cervical. Uh, so what, what's the limit? Well, the, the limit where it will flag uh, a subject is under three degrees, it's going to classify it as a subluxation and bring it as... Say that again, Joe. I said under three, degree, uh, three millimeters, it's going to classify it as a, as a subluxation and, and note it. But uh, using the AMA guides for translational distances, we set it at three and a half millimeters for those people that are, are doing a lot of med legal work. Yeah, that, that's correct. So <clears throat> with... Uh... Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, you were cutting in and out a little bit, but we can hear you now. Okay. So there's some interesting papers that have been done on retralisthesis and antralisthesis, and, and I want to go through a couple that were done on seniors. And you, you got to realize a senior with an antralisthesis or a retralisthesis, it started when they were young. So th this stuff just doesn't magically appear in somebody. It starts with, when they're young from an injury, right? Absolutely. So there, there was a study done in spine in 19, uh, 1988, uh, the June 13th or June issue, uh, volume 13, number six, and it was page 618. And what they did is they, they looked at uh, cervical spondylotic myelopathy and its relationship in the cervical spine, its relationship to cervical alignment and cervical pathology. And what they identified is you know, obviously there's disc protrusions, there's posterior osteophytes, but really a, a big, you know, segmental displacement that occurs in these subjects is a retralisthesis. 
So we're going to see a relatively you know, high incidence of retrolisthesis in elderly patients that have cervical spondylotic myelopathy. Yes. So you still, yep. Okay. So then the limits that you just went through, Joe, those are very important. You know, people that, you know, have a, a, a displacement that is under the AMA uh, threshold for instability, but if they if they have th that, uh, uh, let me just throw out a number, let's say two millimeters, that's under the limit of instability, but if they have that in the neutral position, that's still associated with cervical spondylotic myelopathy. It's a segmental subluxation that's within the limit of joint mobility. Yeah, and okay, I, so. I think, too, I wanted to add is that People often think that oh that these these instabilities or or static or dynamic instabilities as we like to classify they can be in your static neutral position obviously and they're rateable if they are because that's an injury regardless if they're in flexion or extension I mean that's a that's a buckled injury and I, I know you like to talk about that too Deed yeah yeah hey can you talk for a minute i'm gonna have to turn off some of the wireless activity here because i'm getting that static again so why don't you guys chat just for a minute about what i covered and then i'll, I'll come back to this okay well yeah the the one thing that I, w I would like to add too when measuring these uh these instabilities um a lot of doctors measure them incorrectly uh for say for se segmental translations when we're going to measure segmental translation forward or backwards, regardless if you're using the AMA guides or not, we, we still use the same convention where we're going to put two dots on the, the end plate, draw a perpendicular up to the vertebra above, and, the, and then you drop a, a perpendicular down from the posterior inferior margin of the vertebra above, measure that perpendicular distance of shift. That's how you're going to measure translational distance. Oftentimes when doctors are measuring translations, and I saw it all the time, people aren't going to do this by hand, for one, um, except for usually upper cervical doctors um, are pretty, uh, uh, you know, strict with the way they're, they're doing this. Uh, but most, doc most chiropractors are not. So, they'll, you know, I did a lot of med legal work in, in PI cases a lot in the, in the past. And where, where doctors make mistakes is they'll just draw a dot from the inferior posterior aspect of the vertebra above to the one to the superior posterior uh, aspect and say, oh, that's three millimeters or three and a half millimeters or four millimeters. When you do it the right way, you'll see that the three and a half millimeters is quite rare. It really is quite rare when you see it. Now, you're going to see a lot of instabilities of flexion extension if you measure the intersegmental motions of the joints, which Dean might talk about. But you, it's rare to really see something greater than three and a half millimeters when measured correctly. Um, and even the radiologists I dealt with, they would measure it completely wrong as well, too, on the MRI. And they're totally, you know, they'd never really even seen how translational distances are measured. Um, regardless if it's right or wrong, that's how, if you're going to at least quote the AMA guides, you got to do at least the way that White and Punjabi did in the, in the late 70s, and that's where they, they reference for segmental translations. Now, the, the good thing about the, the, what, the one good thing that the guides are doing is that to account for less magnification on X-ray, they're, they're moving towards a percentage of shift. So it doesn't matter if you're at 72, 36, 40 inches, it, it, it's irrelevant that it's going to be a, a, per, a percentage shift forward or backwards, say 
Um, but when you look at those things, that is quite rare to see something that large, especially in the cervical spine. So if you see it in a static position, that's pretty damn significant. Um, regardless if it moves even a little bit more or not, it's a weakened segment. And it, 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 even if it doesn't move when a person goes into flexion, say it's uh, somewhat fused or it's in the process of fusing due to fixation, that's a weakened uh, uh weakened segment. So if there's a traumatic event, what's going to happen is that segment's going to buckle much more when you're going to get, uh, basically set yourself up for catastrophic injury. But, um, you know, if, Fred, did you have anything else that you wanted to add? I know I kind of went into it because this is one of the areas that I kind of teach in, in measuring x-rays. Um, from a from a management standpoint or uh, when you when you train your doctors, do you talk about these the segmental subluxations with your, with your doctors and how do you relate it? Well, definitely, Joe, indeed. You know, I think one of the most impressive seminars that you have, Deed, I mean, all of them are awesome, but, you know, we recently came back from the Seattle Biomechanics Seminar, and you actually show MRIs with the spinal cord, and then what, how that spinal cord is laying in the canal, not only with postural problems, but with segmental problems. And Deed was talking about, you know, these older people with uh, shifts, any of these posterior translations on a neutral spine and from a, you know, from a report of findings perspective, you go to that seminar and you realize that postural shifts and these intersegmental translations really cause compression on the cord. I mean, you're causing cord compression on nerve tracks. Indeed goes through the studies of how, you know, you put a head in flexion and then you measure the uh, muscle impulse or the nerve impulse all the way down in the calf. And you're getting, you know, you're moving the neck and you're affecting nerve impulses all the way down in the lower extremity. And so these conditions are, are more than just health or disease decisions. These are life or death decisions that people are making. And if you're not communicating that or even begin to understand that these subluxations are, are really do cause cord and nerve track conditions and compression, even changes in fluid flow in the fecal sac, then these truly are life and death decisions by the patients. And if they don't understand that, then what level of responsibility are you going to take if they walk out of your office? And, you know, a couple millimeters is life or death for some of these people. Absolutely. You know, and the other thing, too, that I wanted to add is that um, a lot of times when people aren't getting the changes that they want or the patient says that, well, oh, chiropractic didn't work for me, a lot of times what's happening, these people are, the doctors are missing these segmental subluxations all the time. And even though you're, you're a CVP doctor and we're looking at it globally, you have to pay attention to these segmental uh, subluxations because when it falls out of what's not uh, the normal coupling for an abnormal posture, so to speak, when the, the joints are moving um, abnormally within that range of motion, you have to be able to identify it because it does change your intervention and it does change the way you contact the spine and most definitely changes the way you apply traction. So when you guys are applying these traction loads, even if it's on a denerol, while you might think the denerol is you know, something that's not significant, you place that on the right area of the spine or the wrong area of the spine, it's going to make one heck of a difference. And I made the mistake early on in my career that I didn't have a patient come back for getting his checkup. I couldn't get him back in. And he placed it on an area of instability. 
And here was a big guy that I thought the Denerol wouldn't even affect. Well, I gave him a hyperlordosis, or I should say he gave himself a hyperlordosis because he said he, where I, I told him to place it was more uncomfortable, so he placed it down low. And uh, literally, he got a segmental increase in between two joints of upwards of like 15 degrees. Now, intersegmental motion should not be more than 10 to 11 degrees. I mean, even Griffiths and all in 1995, I believe, in skeletal radiology found that using the posterior tangent method of measurements, you can identify a, a buckled segment usually causative from a whiplash injury at 10 degrees of fanning. And so when you have something that's that significant at 15 degrees, you got to pay attention to it. So you got to really look at, especially when you're doing this, I, I took flexion extension films all the time to identify these things. And when you start measuring these, especially intersegmental, you know, the AMA Guides does join above a uh, functional unit to the one below and, you know, subtract the two. We go one step farther and actually look at intersegmental motion in between the joints as well, too. That shouldn't be more than uh, 10 to 11 degrees either. Well, the next thing is when you look at these uh, segmental subluxations, and you know this, Joe, when you, when you see these uh, translational segments on a neutral and then you actually put them into motion – the mechanics are, are ridiculous, and what you're really doing is you're just shredding those discs. When you put shearing forces on those discs, you know, with every motion of the spine practically, then the rate at which their body's going to – and those discs are going to degenerate, and the rate at which their body's going to age is so highly accelerated. And again, it's in these segmental subluxations that you're going to see the most rapid degeneration. And, it are, and, you know, MDs already showed that loss of disc height leads to a shortened lifespan. So when you start degenerating those discs, man, your lifespan starts cutting down. So when you see these intersegmental displacements, and they may be, you know, even if, they're, even if the disc hasn't degenerated, you got to tell that person the rate at which your body is going to age and the probability that you may not live as long just became highly accelerated. Yep. I agree. And that's yeah. the truth. Yep, that's right. Hey, guys, let me throw in a, a few studies here on this. It'll tie in nicely with what you guys were uh, just bringing up. You know, a lot of people don't like the life or death situation. But, you know, really, when you when you start to put it in perspective in like specifically some of the elderly populations, it does become a, an absolute life and death situation uh, for example, there's a study in the Journal of Orthopedic Science in 2007. It's uh, volume 12, number 3, page 207. It was on 79 patients who were 65 years and older who eventually had to have surgical treatment for their cervical spondylotic myelopathy. And so myelopathy is cord pathology. These people have foot drop and motor and, and sensory weaknesses, etc., now, the problem is when they go under surgery, the surgery for these things can have up to a 1.8 to 2% death rate. So, I mean, if, the, if that doesn't, you know, spell life and death, I don't know what does. You know what I mean? So these, these are patients that they started with cervical spine, you know, segmental displacements and altered alignment of the posture and the neck curve. And then it, it got larger and larger and it started to degenerate and put pressure on the cord. And now they've got cord pathology. Now they, they have to have immediate decompression. And now there's a risk for death and infection and all kinds of crap. So anyway, the, these 79 patients, 
for uh, cervical spondylotic myelopathy, 24 of them, that's 30%, had segmental translations greater than 3.5 millimeters mm-hmm. in the neutral position, not, not on flexion extension, in the neutral position. Uh, of those 24, 14 patients had an antralisthesis, and 10 of them had a retralisthesis. So 24 out of 79 had you know, large translations exceeding the limit for instability in their neutral position. Now, if you think about, you know, everything going P, well, 14 of these, uh, you know, 79 patients had large antralisthesis. You you can't adjust that person, you know, P to A. You can't do it, you know, and you can't argue, well, I'm going to get the segment below and I'm going to drive that one forward. It doesn't doesn't work that way. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, you got to figure out, you know, luckily – these people with anterolisthesis, luckily they'll have most of the time they'll have you know an altered neck curve and they'll have anterior head translation. So you can start to drag the head backwards and work on the neck curve. Uh, uh, further of these 79 subjects, 31 of the 79 subjects had uh, translations between two and 3.4 millimeters, and then 24 of them had had translations less than the two millimeter mark. So all these subjects had translation, and 20, 24 of them would be the classic within the, the limits of the joint, and the majority of them actually had you know, translations that are, that are approaching or exceeding the limit of the joint in the neutral position. And, and what they concluded is they said when they broke it all down, anterior listhesis had a greater impact on the development of cervical spinal uh, myelopathy greater than retrolisthesis. Mm. So, you know, an interesting study. It, it, it kind of speaks to what uh, both of you were talking about, uh, you know, the progression of this de- this deformity and condition and then longevity and lifespan. Uh, another study will go to the lumbar spine. You know, a classic one in the lumbar spine is, you know, of course, anterior uh, slippage of the vertebra, either an anterolisthesis or a spondylolisthesis with uh, you know injury or, or anomalies of the pars. And so there, there was a study in spine in 1998 done on uh, 617 subjects. And this, this was an important study because it was a 25-year follow-up. So it's not just a cross-sectional study. It's a cross-sectional study, and then we're going to follow these people for 25 years. Uh, what they uh, did initially is they had 217 men and 400 women that were averaged 54 years. And so then they uh, assessed them again when they were 79 years of age. And what they found was initially eight people out of 617 had a slip of greater than three millimeters in the low back. And that was an anterolisthesis greater than three millimeters. But at long-term follow-up, they, they showed that, boy, now we're, we're seeing a much greater incidence or rate of these slippages. So what they identified is that uh, at long-term follow-up, uh, 23 men had uh, large slippage uh, anterior or posterior, and then uh, 25% of the women had uh, large slippage anterior and posterior. Uh, so, you know, you're seeing a, a much different rate of, of the, uh, number one, the incidence of this and then the magnitude of this as we age in the population. And so what they identified is, 
that uh, 32% of the population that had slippage reported uh, current progressive chronic aching back pain uh, compared to only 19% of the population without slippage. So almost doubling uh, of the uh, report of back pain with slippage. Uh, so of interest, though, the slippage wasn't correlated to previous disability or pain. It was only correlated with current disability and pain. Uh, so the, these things, these segmental displacements, uh, number one, they, they can be quite common in an older population. But number two, they're going to progress and get worse when a subject ages. So, you know, you see somebody that has a mild slippage or a mild postural displacement with a slippage. You don't want to just say, oh, don't worry about it. Don't, you know, in 25 years, you'll be fine. No, the, the reality of it is it's a crisis. It's, hey, this is going to get worse. Let's do something now immediately and let's protect your body and protect the resistance against gravitational and postural loads. Uh, so that's all I have to say about that. Absolutely. Well, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, that shows, you know, you start changing the biomechanics of posture, and then that's why you get segmental displacements because obviously all the stress goes to one area and the ligaments and everything around it can't tolerate it over time. And that's when you were talking about, again, getting into a life or death situation. And when we say life or death, we're not saying, hey, tell somebody they're going to die at an ROF. But certainly over time, like what you just said, Deed, it's going to progress. It's going to the rate of degeneration is going to be highly accelerated. And then the complications become almost innumerable after that. So we're not saying, hey, say life or death now. But the probability of a shortened lifespan you know, down the road, it's like, hey, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say you're not going to die tomorrow, and I'm not going to say you are, but that definitely is associated with serious health problems. Yeah, that that's true. Hey, there, there's one more paper I want to throw out there, and then uh, we can wrap up a bit. Uh, the, there was a paper in Spine, or excuse me, in the Spine Journal in 2003, and this was the July-August issue. The Spine Journal, 2003, uh, Volume 3, Number 4, page 255. Uh, this was done on 481 African-American women uh, aged 65 years and older. They identified in, the, in these 481 women, they identified retros in the lumbar spine, a true retro greater than 3 millimeters, so instability, in 4% of the population. So 4% of these people had instabilities with their retros. I mean, greater than 3 millimeters in the low back is a large displacement in the neutral position. They, they also found that these retros were associated with, number one, like you said, Fred, decreased disc height, and number two, an increased uh, prevalence of spine problems and impaired walking. So you're looking at disability performance and back pain. And so this is a very important thing. Now, the, the good news from a biomechanical point of view, uh, when I see a retrolisthesis, most of the time, uh, number one, you're, you're going to be able to adjust P to A, which is nice. That fits the Gonstead adjusting. And number two, the person's rib cage is going to be posteriorly translated. So you can drive the rib cage forward as a gross postural displacement 
and you can make a segmental contact on the retrolisthesis. So you can correct both the posture and the retro at the same time. And then number three, most of the people that have a retrolisthesis tend to have loss of the lumbar lordosis. And so then you can you know, make the argument of curve correction at, at the same time. Uh, so some interesting studies on segmental displacements. Uh, I know focused mostly on the elderly, but we few a couple other things in there as well. Good stuff. Well, well, I also want to say, um, you know, Dean, you just committed to being in our Elite Vegas seminar August 25th, 26th, and you're going to go over CVP technique, the sagittal spine, and research that shows sagittal spine and the relationship between health and disease. So that's an awesome seminar that, that definitely, uh, you know, you bring research like this that really shows minimally every patient is making a health or disease decision. Optimally, it's life or death. So and yeah. you're gonna bring you're gonna bring it there. So I appreciate you being there. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be there. So that's August 25th and 26th down in Las Vegas, and uh, they can register for that on your website, right? Yeah, go to elitecoachingllc.com or just call me at 253-851-8353. It's only 98 bucks to go to the seminar for a guest. So check it out. Actually, the whole now that I'm doing that, give a shameless plug. The whole theme for that weekend is uh, keeping patients for a lifetime. So it's really how to get a patient, not only through correction, but keep them into lifetime maintenance where they're actually living the optimal spine, optimal health lifestyle. And that's why it's so important that Dee's there when it's such a, an appropriate topic with you know showing the research that shows postural problems, whether segmental or global postural problems, really are a health or disease condition. Yeah, so there. Yep. That's right. Well, since we're doing shameless plugs for seminars in uh, – in July, I'm not going to mention the August ones just yet. Uh, we'll do that maybe next week. But uh, the July seminars that CBP has coming up, I've got uh, Dr. Dan Murphy on Saturday and Sunday, July 7th and 8th. I know it's after the 4th, but the 4th is on a Wednesday, so you don't need a five-day weekend. <laughs> Foster and Neurology with Dan Murphy in Detroit, Michigan, or just outside of Detroit in a nice suburb, not the uh, downtown inner city. But <laughs> Yeah, Where, yeah. I'm not going to say any more about that, but uh, just outside of Detroit and Dearborn, Michigan, we've got Dan Murphy, July 7th uh, and 8th, and then uh, in San Francisco, July uh, 21st and 22nd, we've got the CBP Upper Cervical Seminar, which we've been talking uh, quite a bit about on this podcast, so if you want to learn a little bit more about the upper cervical spine, actually a lot more about the upper cervical spine, come to the uh, July San Francisco seminar. And you can go uh, to the idealspine.com uh, website, and you can look at the seminars. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, with Dr. Joe Ferentelli, I know you're going to want to say some things, but the, the displacements that we've been discussing here, Posture Ray, the X-ray software that CBP has its information and models in, and that Dr. Joe Ferentelli is a, the CEO of that company, uh, that's really the tool that you want to have in your office to to measure these spine segmental rotations and translations. Because if you don't put numbers on it and measure it, it doesn't exist. Uh, that's true, Deed. And I'm going to be <clears throat> debuting the nasium analysis for doctors to use at that seminar as well. And the fact is, is that since you did all the research, that basically we put a graphical user interface 
that was friendly for clinicians on all the research that we've done. So basically, it's the CBP backend that's driving posture. Yep. Amen. And and uh, so really quick, guys, because Joe, we we've got a, a conference call to do. Yep. Uh, so I I would uh, just like to say I appreciate being the the guest speaker. <laughs> yes, uh, you're welcome uh, back. This evening on Cairo United, and uh, it was a pleasure talking to both of you, and I hope the listeners out there enjoy this. All right, guys. Have a good night. Okay, bye-bye. See you next week.